On this episode of Blue 58, we are officially on to 2019, to borrow a quote from Bill Belichick. Let's take that opportunity to talk about what could be the very last true bright spot of the 2018 Packers season. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode as we continue our retrospective of the 2018 Packers season. Did you enjoy the Super Bowl? That's where we were hoping the 2018 Packers would end up. Didn't quite work out that way. I would like to take this opportunity to dive into something that's related to the Super Bowl. It is one of the debates that I think is perhaps the most exhausting in all of sports, football or otherwise. Who is the greatest of all time? I do not care. I could not care less. And I think anybody who does care is wasting their time. I have not put together a top-to-bottom full argument resulting in one dramatic conclusion as to why debating the GOAT is silly. Instead, I have a few that I would like you to consider. All right, let's talk through this. Why the GOAT argument, the greatest of all time, is stupid. First and foremost, you've got a problem right off the bat, because calling somebody the greatest of all time either pretends that all eras are equal or pretends that another is a truer representation of a sport than another. On the one hand, all the eras aren't equal. Different things happen in different eras of a sport. And on another you can't really divorce the quote-unquote true era of a sport from another because they all build on each other. Rules evolve out of other rules. Strategy builds out of other strategy. And what we come to expect from certain positions changes over time. For instance, take the quarterback position. At one point, the quarterback had better not only be one of, if not your best player on offense all around, running and passing, but had better be a pretty good defensive player too. How can you say that one player is definitively the best of all time when he has a completely different job from other people at other times, and whose job may be different from other players, yet still in the future? Having the debate over the greatest of all time also separates players from context in a way that it is destructive of the overall conversation. For instance, where do you draw the line on coach contributions? Can you confidently say that any player is truly successful or not successful independent of his coach? For instance, look at Steve Young in the 80s and 90s. He should rightly be considered one of the best of all time at his position. But he had a lot of early success with Bill Walsh, had some later success with other coaches, though not as much as he had with his earlier coaches. Could he have been considered among higher on the list of greatest of all time if he had had a better coach that entire time? For a more contemporary example, look at Aaron Rodgers. We've spent most of the last three years debating how much Aaron Rodgers' coach was holding him back. Would we view him differently if he had a different coach? And furthermore, what about defense? The things that affect a player's success, 
that he has no control over. This most recent Super Bowl ended with a tremendously low amount of points. And either side could have benefited from that. But that's something that a guy like Aaron Rodgers has never benefited from. Or, to use a positive example, a guy like Peyton Manning earned another Super Bowl ring largely on the strength of his defense. It had almost nothing to do with but what Peyton Manning did in Denver, yet he gets to be remembered as a quarterback who won two Super Bowls. Further, to what extent do we count off-the-field stuff? It matters in Hall of Fame voting. Why not in greatest-of-all-time conversations? For instance, Terrell Owens was recently denied the opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot because a lot of sports writers carried some kind of grudge against him. To a lesser extent, the same stuff came into the conversation concerning Randy Moss. And to wind back the clock a little bit further, O.J. Simpson has been all but evicted from the Hall of Fame, practically or less practically speaking, for his myriad off-the-field issues. I'm not saying that all these off-the-field issues are the same. I'm just merely pointing out that people do take them into consideration. In addition, I have significant questions about when someone becomes the greatest of all time. If someone is the greatest of all time, they were always the greatest of all time. That is what all time means. So why is there ever even a debate? Well, because of the qualifications. We all insist that a greatest of all time player is transcendent of stats. Their greatness is just so overwhelming that it's apparent to everybody. But we are also eager and insistent that we talk about their accomplishments, the measurable things which they have done that are better than anyone else. But that means that there was a time at which they were not the greatest of all time. And that gets especially tricky because of two things. First, because that means there was a definite point at which they moved from the second or third greatest of all time into first place and became the greatest. That also means that we have to agree not on not one, but at least two greatest of all time, the current one and the one whom they passed. Which brings us to a final point. Why is it so important anyway? You and I can only ever live at one point in time, the present. And the people we're watching right now are the only people we can see. And the people playing right now are the only ones that matter. People who played in the past and did all the things that they do and did are gone. They're not coming back. Their legacies have finished. But they may also be undeniably great. And say a guy is undeniably great. Say a guy like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James is playing when you happen to be a fan of your sport of choice. In this example, basketball. Why is it so important that this person is the greatest ever? Why is it not good enough that they are the best right now? Because if somebody is really the greatest of all time, and we know this for sure, we might as well quit. Because if we're going to call them the greatest ever of all time, past, present, and future, we might as well quit. Because nobody could ever really be better. I will not 
subject you to any further rants. But this most recent Super Bowl brought it out of me. Let's talk about Packers games 5 and 6 from the 2018 season. We are going game by game through the 2018 season for three reasons. First, as we say every episode, it's important to tease out the truth of the narrative in 2018. Sometimes the way we perceive things at the time is not correct, and it's important to go back and see where we may have gone astray. It's also important to see if where we ultimately ended up was correct. And by going back and looking at what we thought at a given time, we are able to determine that a little bit better. Secondly, it might be important that we do this in that it brings into clearer focus things that maybe we forgot a little bit or diminished over time. And finally, just plainly, it helps us to remember who did what and when. So how do we do this? We ask three questions. What led up to a game? What happened in the game? And how should we remember that game? Good? Good. Game number five. The Packers travel to Detroit to take on the Lions on October 7th, 2018. What led up to this game? Well, people were getting very mad at Aaron Rodgers, to varying degrees, for his comments after the Bills game, led most loudly by Colin Coward who said on his radio show that Aaron Rodgers needed to suppress his ego and take the blame for the Packers' shortcoming. In response to this, we introduced Captain Two Thoughts, our recurring character that points out that it is possible to have two thoughts at the same time. In this particular instance, those two thoughts were, it's possible for Aaron Rodgers to have a point about the Packers' offense, namely, that the Packers' offense is not playing super well, while it also could be true at the same time that Aaron Rodgers is part of the reason the offense isn't doing so well. Transcendent thinking there on the part of Captain Two Thoughts. I have to point that out to him. Also happening this week, leading up to the Packers-Lions game, the Packers signed Tyler Lancaster to the active roster to replace Muhammad Wilkerson, who, as you'll remember, two weeks prior had uh, sustained a season-ending ankle injury at the hands or more specifically, precisely, the lower leg of Cantrell Bryce. Finally, leading up to this game, I bemoaned the lack of an actual rivalry between the Packers and Lions, and this seems so silly in retrospect. But here's what I said in that preview podcast before the Packers-Lions game. Quote, even in the early 90s, beating the Lions proved something for the Packers. Taking out Barry Sanders in the playoffs showed that the Packers had arrived. Imagine a game between the Packers and Lions today carrying the same weight. The Packers have quality rivalries between their other two division opponents. It would be great to see a third rival in the NFC North someday, and I hope we don't have to bring the Buccaneers back into the division to do it. End quote. Boy, oh boy. That feels a little bit different here in February, doesn't it? Yes, it does. This is why I don't like to make predictions, because sometimes you sound pretty silly, and I wish more people in sports would take a second to look back at how silly they sound when you bring their words into the present. Thank goodness for old takes exposed, right? Well, what actually happened in this game? Well, once again, I spun this one, and it felt, I think, even at the time, Very much like one of those, well, it's taken some time to get this thing sorted out, but they're going to get it sorted out, and it's going to happen this week. Type games. Spoiler alert, no, that is not what happened. And it never happened, really, in 2018. The final score of this game looks close, 
It was not close. The Packers were down 24 to nothing at halftime, and it should, in all honesty, probably have been more. The Lions opened this game with a pretty decent drive, but were forced to punt. But wouldn't you know it, things went bad right away for the Packers. Kevin King was ruled to have touched the punt, even though on replay it looked like there was pretty clear evidence that it touched a Lions player first. The Lions recover on the one-yard line. Touchdown, 7-0 Lions. No biggie, you can probably survive that. Ensuing kickoff, Ty Montgomery has a 64-yard return, but there's a flag. The Packers start their first drive on their own 12. No biggie, you can survive that too. Long drive by the Packers stalls out in Lions territory. Mason Crosby misses a field goal. 41 yards. Probably one you should make indoors. And it seems like maybe the mistakes are starting to add up a little bit, but you can still probably survive that too. The Lions respond with a four-play, 69-yard drive for a touchdown. 14-0 Detroit. Okay, you can probably survive that too, but come on, guys. This is getting a little scary here. An eight-yard kickoff return. Up next, eight yards. Ty Montgomery, what are you thinking? I don't know, but three plays later, Aaron Rodgers is sacked. He fumbles inside the Packers' own 20. The Lions kick a field goal, 17 to nothing. It already is starting to seem like this may be too much for the Packers to overcome. You may, in fact, have forgotten how much worse it gets, but it does get worse because the Packers get a chance to respond and Mason Crosby misses a field goal from 42 yards out. Now it seems like this is getting ridiculous. Surely it cannot get worse, but yes, it does get worse. The Lions punt and the Packers get another chance to respond. They drive all the way down to the Lions' four-yard line. At which point, this series of plays happens. An incomplete pass into the end zone. An intentional grounding call pushes, pushes the Packers back. 16 yards, and Mason Crosby misses again, this time from 38 yards. Okay, surely it is not going to get worse than this. Surely right now is as bad as it gets for the Packers in the first half of this already very bad game. Nope, just kidding. It still gets worse. After a Lions punt, the Packers take over on their own 15-yard line with a minute 30 to go in the first half. The Packers are going to receive to start the second half, so if they score here, they can really cut into the deficit. The one thing you can't do is turn the ball over. Just kidding. Three plays later, Aaron Rodgers is sacked. He fumbles again, and the Lions score a touchdown. 24-0 Lions at halftime. Game over. And for good measure, Lance Kendricks lines up offside on the kickoff after the Lions made it 24-0. There are seconds remaining in the first half. And somehow the Packers find a way to squeeze one more embarrassing penalty in there. The second half in this one is purely academic. Even though the Packers make what looks like a game of it, they really don't. They were not winning this game. So here are some highlights of things that did happen in the second half. Marquez Valdez-Scantling scores his first career touchdown as part of his first career multi-reception game. Mason Crosby went on to miss another point after, or miss a point after. And, uh, and another field goal. He did finally make one. The Packers had at least two more special teams penalties in the second half. And Equinemia St. Brown had his first career catch and also became the first Packers rookie of this year to break 75 receiving yards in a game. Not too bad from a statistical perspective, though you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt considering the situation the Packers were in. So how do we m- remember this game? Well, I don't know if it's original to him, 
But my colleague Gary has a great expression for things that are bad in a very particular way. Calls them loud bad. I think you know what the feeling of loud bad is. It's not something that's kind of subtle or like underwhelmingly bad or just kind of meh. Loud bad is bad and proud. Like we are leaving no doubt about how bad this is. And this was the first time in 2018 that the Packers were loud bad. And they were loud bad in every way, but especially on special teams, which were the farthest thing from special you could probably imagine. This is the game where everybody who said the Packers could and probably should be able to turn things around late in the season, in the second half of the season, after the bye week, whatever, this is the game that everybody, myself included, should have looked back at and said, wait, that game happened. This team is no good. This team is really bad. Sure, you can take the approach of saying, yep, we'll just flush that game, we'll forget it happened, and we'll move on. But, in hindsight, this game really doesn't look like that much of an outlier, and it probably looks closer to a true representation of what the Packers were in 2018 than a lot of other games, than a lot of the games that they were nominally in, or most of. It's tempting to look at games like what happened in Los Angeles where the Packers were competitive with the Rams or where they were competitive for a long time with the Patriots and say, look, that's where the Packers were. They were so close to being good. But this game happened too. And I think if you look at the 2018 season as a top-to-bottom failure, this is the game that kind of looks more like that true top-to-bottom failure than any other. Even the Packers' defense which was at times very respectable in 2018, barely seemed to show up to play in this one. And yes, they got put in some bad spots, but they put themselves in plenty of bad spots too. So we move on. The Packers get a chance to right the ship a little bit before heading to their bye week. Game six of the regular season. The Packers host the San Francisco 49ers at Lambeau Field on October 15th, a Monday. That means it's Monday night football. What led up to this game? Packers made a small, couple small moves, adding running back Trey Carson and wide receiver Keon Hatcher to their practice squad. There's nothing really to talk about with either of those guys. They ended up being pretty inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. This week, though, also marked when people really started calling in earnest, I think, for Mike McCarthy to be fired. And I don't mean just the people who are loud on the internet. I mean, like, people with a national perspective who take serious looks at things. Robert Bay- Mays of The Ringer most notably trotted out the, uh, the Mike McCarthy is wasting Aaron Rodgers storyline. We did a full episode rebuttal of that article. But we did also have to confront the concept of replacing Mike McCarthy, and we did so that week for the first time. Presented a couple options, most notably among them firing him midseason, which the Packers ultimately ended up doing, and we presented the name of Joe Philbin as a potential interim coach. Not exactly groundbreaking perspective there, I realize, but we did bring it up at the time. We also talked about replacing McCarthy because we didn't think that Joe Philbin was the long-term answer. We said if you want to go with a pro coaching tree, the best way to do it is to pick, or a pro coach replacement rather, so somebody who's coaching in the NFL, the best way to do that is to pick a coaching tree that you like and take a name from there. And we 
named Sean McVay as the most notable, probably, coaching tree that you could pick from. And that's kind of what ended up happening, too. So I don't know if I want to give us credit for really accurately predicting what happened, but we at least presented possibilities that ended up being among the scenarios. Finally, leading up to this game, I predicted for the second time this season that Aaron Rodgers was going to have a silencing the doubters type game. One game when he really puts it all together. And it still did not happen. And it did not happen in a very specific way because I laid out a pretty specific prediction for something that I thought the Packers would do. Here's something from our preview piece. Quote, if there's one thing Mike McCarthy seems to do well, it's getting his team ready to play for high pressure regular season regular season primetime games. We haven't seen a complete effort from the Packers yet, but with the Monday Night Football crew headed to Lambeau and an underwhelming 49ers team coming to town, this seems like a good opportunity to put together a full game. I think the Packers do it. Give me Green Bay 31, San Francisco 13, end quote. Yeah, that is not what happened. 49ers were very underwhelming as they made their way to Lambeau Field, so much so that they started C.J. Beathard at quarterback. Nothing against C.J. Beathard. We even made a point of calling him out in pregame as somebody who was doing a pretty good job for the 49ers, but hardly the sort of guy who you'd think would be terribly intimidating as the 49ers come to Lambeau Field for a primetime matchup with Aaron Rodgers. But immediately that proves to be a little bit short-sighted because this game was a track meet from the start. In In retrospect, I think it's tempting to compare this one to the Chicago game, given what happened at the end, the Packers coming down the field for a dramatic win right at the end. But these games aren't really at all the same. This was the Packers ending up in an offensive slugfest with a team that really they had no business being in an offensive slugfest with. The 49ers shouldn't have been going toe-to-toe with the Packers. The Packers' defense was good enough to prevent that from happening. The Packers' offense should have been good enough to outpace the 49ers, even if they you know, were not playing to their potential at this point. But it ended up just being kind of this track meet. And there were tons of big plays in the first half on both sides. Here's just a bullet point rundown of the lengths of some of these big plays. And I'm just counting the ones that are 20 yards or longer. A 22-yard pass by the 49ers. A 60, a 22, and 54-yard pass by the Packers. That is followed by a 67-yard pass by the 49ers. A 21-yard pass by the Niners. 26 yards by the 49ers. 30 yards by the 49ers. And most of these things that the 49ers are doing are pretty much right up the middle. The deep middle of the field where the Packers' safeties can't seem to do anything at all. And that ultimately results in a 24-20 halftime lead for San Francisco. What in the world is going on in this game? Who knows? Mike Pettin apparently knows because he gets things figured out for the second half. In the first half, San Francisco managed to gain yards in big chunks. But as the game wore on, Mike Pettin put a stop to that. San Francisco's first three scoring drives in this game were all seven plays or less. Two or three plays or less. But from the five-minute mark in the second quarter or so and on, the 49ers didn't have a scoring drive of less than nine plays. None of them resulted in touchdowns, and two were ten plays or longer. And scoring on long drives is hard to do. It's a lot easier to get big chunk plays and to go from there. But Mike Patton and the Packers' defense took those chunk plays away. Meanwhile, the Packers' offense did not come out hot. 
They scored a, a field goal on the first drive of the second half to make the game 24 to 23, but things bogged down from there. The offense more or less fell into neutral, and even though the defense was preventing those chunk plays, San Francisco was still taking a lot of time off the clock. But then Pettin and the defense cranked it up one more notch, starting with San Francisco's first drive of the fourth quarter. Pettin and the Packers forced three straight three and outs. And given what had happened in the game to that point, forcing one would have been impression, but impressive, but three in a row, downright amazing. And the third one ended in pretty spectacular fashion. Let's set the scene. After Pettin and the defense forced the second three and out, Rodgers and the offense scored a touchdown to tie the game with a minute 55 left. But as they so often did last season, the Packers special teams immediately tried to give the game away. The 49ers busted out a 32-yard kickoff return, which would have been bad enough, but Tony Brown chose that exact moment to hit somebody late, out of bounds, and gave the 49ers another 15 yards. Suddenly, you're looking at first and 10 from the 49ers' 47-yard line. You're probably two-ish first downs from field goal range, and a win if you are the 49ers. On first down, they complete a pass for seven yards. On second down, they throw incomplete, but still, third and three, with potentially the game on the line, and by now they are in Packers territory. Mike Pettin chooses this moment to bring the house. He rushes eight players. C.J. Beathard throws deep, and Kevin King grabs his first interception of the season. And you can almost see it in hindsight. The highlight truthers out there saying, wow, he should have knocked it down. San Francisco may have punted it, and the Packers potentially get better field position because the Packers ended up on their own 10-yard line here. I think the Pack, or I think rather the 49ers may have gone for it on fourth and three. They're one and four already on the season at this point. What do they have to lose? So you lose because the Packers, you know, stop you on fourth down and they go down and kick a field goal or whatever. More power to them, I guess, if you're if you're the 49ers. I can understand wanting to to do your best to win every game, but given how the 49ers had been moving the ball on offense for really the, the entire game, going forward on fourth and three might not have been that bad of a move. But Kevin King takes the ball away, and suddenly the Packers are kind of in business. Kind of, because they're on their own 10 with a minute seven to go. And they don't know it, but they are about to embark on the ugliest game-winning drive of Aaron Rodgers' career. I don't know definitively that it's the ugliest, but it's got to be right up there. We talk a lot about how important drive starters are, and without the way the Packers started this drive, they might might not even have been in a position to try to score, to try to push down and get that game-winning field goal. Because they start out with not a a pass, it's a 14-yard run by Ty Montgomery. Kind of an unexpected leak out the left side. Montgomery rushes for 14 yards and gets out of bounds. From there, Aaron Rodgers goes deep and the pass falls incomplete. And then, strangest thing, the Packers are hit with a delay of game penalty. From there, they throw incomplete and suddenly it's third and 15. And it would be fourth and 15 if not for an illegal contact penalty by Richard Sherman that keeps things going. The next play, Aaron Rodgers breaks off a 21-yard run. He spikes the ball, completes one pass to Devontae Adams for eight yards, completes another nice one to Equinemius St. Brown for 19, 
throws the ball away to burn a little bit of clock, and the Packers line up for and kick a game-winning field goal with three seconds left. 33-30, to the final score. The Packers come back and win. It was ugly. It was more dramatic than it needed to be, but it's a win for the Packers. So how do we remember this game? I think you remember it as the game that Mike Pettin won for the Packers and might have lost for the Packers given how his defense played in the first half. Why the Packers' defense started so slow at points this season is something I'll never understand, but they definitely started slow in this one and it almost cost them big. You also have to think about the idea of deserving a win, and that's not a thing ultimately. But if it was at all, this would not be a game the Packers deserve to win. I mean, letting... C.J. Beathard and that offense put up 30 points on you? Come on. Do you really deserve to win that game? I don't think so. But ultimately, I think this game should go down as the last bright spot of the 2018 season. That it was a bad season overall really doesn't mean there weren't bright spots. There were, of course. But this is, I think, as close as we get to the last true bright spot that doesn't come with some caveats. Because every win they have after the bye is either, oh, it was the Dolphins, or "Eh, maybe they shouldn't have been even trying to win games at that point, or who cares if you come back and beat the Jets. But all that considered, this one probably gets as close as any game after the Bears game to being a true that was fun and exciting, and I'm not going to think too much about it. Bright spot. And from here, it gets a lot darker. Because after the bye week, we have the worst stretch of the 2018 Packers season. We're headed to Los Angeles, and we're headed to New England. And this may be the true end of the 2018 season. But that is next time on Blue 58. And that's all I've got for you in particular on this episode. You can find us as you always do at thepowersweep.com on Facebook and on Twitter and via email by typing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com into the address bar of the email program of your choice. If you'd like to support us, you may do so at patreon.com slash thepowersweep or by uh, buying one of our fine t-shirts or sweatshirts via our Teespring store. Click the shop link at thepowersweep.com to find your way there. As always, the freest and easiest way to support the show is by leaving us a review on iTunes. It's a lot of help to us. No pressure there, though. We just do love to hear from you, and any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps all of us become Smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, the smarter, or smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I am John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.